Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, to my bed crimers. Hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Do me a favor, if after watching the video you find you enjoyed it or you learned something, smash that like button and please consider subscribing. And if you want to support the work I do, please consider a membership. I keep the price really low, $1.99 a month. Hey, that's much less than even one drink from Starbucks. Now, without further ado, let's dig in. Charlie Adelson's ex-girlfriend and co-conspirator in the plot to do in Adelson's former brother-in-law, Dan Markell, Katie McBanawa is now 39 years old. She was just 29 at the time of the crime. So Katie was arrested and charged in October of 2016 for her role. Although she didn't pull the trigger, Katie was the conduit between the Adelsons and the two hitmen, Sigfredo Garcia, Katie's baby daddy, and his best friend, Latin King leader, Luis Rivera. Eventually, law enforcement made the connection between Katie, Sigfredo, and Charlie Adelson after they connected the Prius seen leaving Markel's driveway with Luis Rivera. But Katie never told Rivera Charlie's name. All he knew was that Katie had been dating a dentist. Well, actually, Charlie was a periodontist, but that's a moot point now. When law enforcement hit a wall in trying to get the necessary evidence to charge Charlie Adelson and possibly other Adelsons too for the insidious murder or hire plot against Markel, they offered Katie total immunity twice. Had she taken the deal, she would have been out of jail in a few days and back with her kids. Katie refused that deal. She later explained this perplexing move by saying to give up Charlie Adelson meant she would have to give up the father of her children, Sigfredo Garcia. In the end, a jury found Katie guilty and sentenced her to life in prison. Plus, two consecutive 30-year prison terms. So she could have gotten out scot-free, but she basically threw her life away to protect Garcia. Bad move, especially since when she asked him through his mother if he would testify during her trial and say that she knew nothing of the murder plot, but instead thought it would be a roughing up of the victim, Garcia never showed up. She was loyal to him, but he didn't return the favor. These days, Katie has plenty of time to regret her life choices as she spends her days in the dreary Lowell Correctional Institute in Ocala, Florida. It must be very lonely in there because Katie recently signed up for Date an Inmate and said that she's looking to communicate with either men or women. Today, I want to tell you about her life in Lowell. So grab a drink, find a soft seat, and let's dig in. Lowell Correctional Institute, like the Wakulla Prison, I hope I said that right, where Charlie Adelson now hangs his hat and his head, is a faith and character-based facility. It opened in 1956 and was the first prison in Florida for women. Thus, Katie is surrounded solely by sisters. Aside from the correctional officers, 
which can sometimes be a problem, but I'll get into that a little later. Think orange is the new black. Nearly 3,000 women are housed in the complex, which includes something called the Lowell Annex. The main building can house up to 1,456 inmates, the annex up to 1,500. Inmates under minimum and medium security levels live at Lowell, as well as those under what's called close custody. This is a protected level of security. These inmates are typically housed in single cells and are closely monitored for safety reasons. The other chickadees in the joint are either in dormitories where two inmates share a cell or the open bay style dormitories where there's a huge room filled with bunk beds. In there, you're surrounded by other people. Katie McBanawa is in the open bay dormitory, from what I understand, which means that at night, when everyone is hunkered down in their beds, she hears the cacophony of all the various types of music the other inmates are listening to. Even though everyone has earphones on, some people who are less thoughtful than others have the volume all the way up. The sound leaks out, and thus the room is buzzing with this unpleasant potpourri of music. To fall asleep requires earplugs, if you can get your hands on them, and putting your pillow over your head and holding it tight to your ear. It can be maddening at times, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Now, the nice thing about Lowell is that it offers several academic programs, including adult basic education services, a GED program, a volunteer literary program, and Title I services. The Title I services are for Lowell's youth population. They are the inmates who are ages 21 and below. Title I, if you don't know, is a federally funded program, and its goal is to help disadvantaged students meet state academic content and performance standards. You see, Lowell has a separate dormitory and program for offenders 21 and under. It's super sad to think of young women being in there. Thus, the prison keeps the older women apart from the younger ones. Inmates can also study cosmetology, culinary arts, that would be good for Katie because she says she's a foodie, equine or horse care, heavy equipment operating, and manufacturing. There's also art therapy, which sounds really kind of nice, something called dance to be free. I'd like to do that, especially if it means dancing your way right out of that building and into a car to get away. And a lactation program, yoga and more. Katie McBanawa partakes of the yoga classes. There's also a substance abuse program as many of the inmates committed crime due to their addictions. That's the good stuff. Now let's talk about the bad stuff. Lowell has been criticized repeatedly for widespread inmate abuse, S.A., and other inhumane conditions. A report published in December of 2020 revealed horrific acts of S.A. The report came after the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Middle District of Florida spent two and a half years researching Lowell and all the complaints. And according to an article in Florida's Phoenix newspaper, despite the scathing report, as of December 2022, nothing much had changed. 
Over the years, inmates have alleged essay by other inmates, as well as by the correctional officers. And because it's been difficult post the COVID pandemic to find well-trained staff, supervision, at least in the mid-level security dorms, is said to be very much lacking. Per the complaints filed by inmates, some staff essayed prisoners through unwanted and coerced contact. Some prisoners were forced to perform certain acts in places like the bathrooms, closets, and officers' stations. Some officers have been known to sneak into the open bay dorms in the middle of the night and take women to isolated areas in the prison. In other instances, staff demanded that prisoners undress in front of them, sometimes in exchange for basic needs, such as toilet paper, soap, and sanitary napkins. Some inmates reported staff watching them shower and use the toilet. Other officers have also been accused of, get this, spitting in the inmates' faces, threatening to slam them into the concrete, and calling them all sorts of derogatory names, which I'm sure you can't imagine. This is not to say that all the guards are monsters. There are a few compassionate ones, but they seem to be few and far between. One former inmate at Lowell said that she had the feeling the prison actually trained the officers to be deliberately lacking in empathy and to be as cold as possible so that they would not fall prey to possible manipulation by the inmates. The state correction officials, of course, objected to the allegations, and they tried to say that most of the alleged incidents took place two to five years earlier. The officials also claimed that 12 of the accused corrections department employees identified as perpetrators or suspected perpetrators were no longer working with female inmates, and five of them had been arrested and charged. FYI, according to an article on the Tallahassee Democrat website, correctional officers in 2023 at Lowell had a starting salary of $41,600. So this is the rough environment in which Katie McBanawa finds herself. I'm sure the pool of inmates is much like the pool of corrections officers. Some are kind and gentle, and some are aggressive, cray-cray, the type who like to start fights, you get the picture. One former inmate said that Lowell is also teeming with drama. There's tons of gossip. There are cliques, just like in high school, including the popular inmate clique. There's girlfriend drama, women fighting other women, women disrespecting the corrections officers. Sometimes inmates put on fake fights, apparently, because they want to get out of the dormitory and go to solitary confinement just for a break and a change of scenery. Yep, it's true. Now, according to a former inmate, some buildings at Lowell don't have air conditioning, which has in the past led to mold growing on the walls and in the showers. In the summer, if it's, say, 105 degrees Fahrenheit outside, 
It's absolutely oppressive inside. You can take the shower and then five minutes later be drenched in sweat. All the buildings without AC have fans, but they don't really do the job. In the winter, even though it's Florida, it can get very cold. Lowell does have heat. Thank goodness for little favors. One of the big problems at Lowell are the mattresses. They are said to be so old that they're no longer plump. Inmates shove the stuffing inside to one side of the mattress, and then they sleep just on that side. Otherwise, it's like sleeping on a metal floor. Now, when Katie was sent to Lowell from the Leon County Jail, she likely had little warning about the move. Prisons do this because they don't want inmates knowing ahead of time. Apparently, the prisons do this because they don't want inmates telling their families they're worried that the families will somehow show up and try to help the inmate break out of prison. Sounds silly, but I guess that's the reason for this. Katie would have been transported to Lowell in handcuffs and shackles, and she would have sat in a metal box-like van. Inmates are chained to one another in it, and they sit in seats that are divided by metal walls, and there's typically no talking allowed. Upon arrival at Lowell, Katie would have gone into a fairly large room with a lot of other women. Officers would have barked orders at her, and the first order would be, remove your clothes. The guard would have then told her to lift her breasts, and then to squat and cough. At that point, the guard would have been closely examining Katie's pink taco and other orifices. The guards would be looking for any contraband she might have tried to smuggle in. I wonder if there's any room in the belly button. Now, it's no doubt a very humiliating experience, and the message the staff would have been conveying to Katie in that moment is that she no longer has any privacy, she is no better than an animal, in fact, she's less than an animal and more like a piece of garbage because she opted to break the law. No one cares if you committed a crime because you were suffering from addiction or you were desperate for money. Now, she would just be a number, and her feelings really don't matter. Lest you think I feel sorry for her, I do not. I'm just describing the reality of the situation. Katie would have then been given her prison blues, some towels and washcloths, some toiletries, just basic stuff like soap and toothpaste. As she stood there getting all these items, she would have noticed the nearby bathroom, where all the toilets are laid out in a line and they're all open. Again, no privacy. Then Katie would have been walked to her dormitory. At this point, she would have had to walk past other inmates in cells, and they would have been catcalling to her and making disgusting sounds and gestures. Yes, this stuff really happens. It's not just in the movies and on TV shows. When she arrived at her dormitory, she would have been assigned a bunk and a small locker. Typical day at Lowell for Katie begins bright and early. At 6 a.m., she's awakened and has time to maybe shower, dress, make up her bed, and prepare for breakfast. By 6.45 a.m., she would be in the chow hall. The food at Lowell is supposedly pretty good. They serve things like biscuits and gravy and coffee cake, and these items are said to be quite delicious. And if you have canteen money, you can make things like cake and pie in your cell or dormitory. There are all sorts of recipes that you can concoct from items purchased from the canteen. Instant ramen noodles, 
strawberry jelly, saltines, honey buns, Kool-Aid. These ingredients are often used to create special dishes. Maybe this is why Katie says she's a foodie. But cooking in prison as an inmate is not easy. Depending on the institution, ingredients are limited to whatever the cafeteria is serving and what's available for purchase in the canteen. Now, one of the recipes is for Kool-Aid pie. You take a box of graham crackers and you cut it up to be the vessel or the pan. The pie crust is then made with crushed graham crackers, butter, and honey. The filling is composed of powdered milk, Kool-Aid of your preference, packets of sugar, and water. Not sure if that would be good or not. Maybe after being in prison for a while, that would taste like a slice of heaven. However, the canteen prices can be steep for inmates, so not everyone is going to have access to those items. If you don't have any money, your only hope is to be invited to partake of someone else's Kool-Aid pie. Let me give you an idea of the canteen prices. Info I got is a little bit dated, uh, but you can imagine this price probably went up. In 2019, six ounce bag of coffee would have cost you $7. 12 packages of ramen soup would set an inmate back $7.80. In 2024, that price has got to be higher. And if you want a box of, say, 54 Tampax, which normally costs about $5.86 at Walmart, it will cost you $21.71. Apparently, tampons are not free in prison, but sanitary napkins are. The staff has their own canteen. They have different prices, and the prices are significantly lower. For example, a bottle of water for a staff member is $0.43, cents, but it's $1.02 for a prisoner. And those honey bun donuts are 89 cents for staffers and $1.62 for inmates. And get this, staff is offered various services provided by prisoners. No, not what you're thinking, not that type of service. I'm talking about things like car washes and waxes, haircuts, and shoe shines. Back to the food and the chow hall. The weird thing is that there are days when talking is forbidden. Thus, instead of conversation, all you hear are your fellow inmates chewing, smacking their lips, etc. It can be a very unpleasant sound for some people. After her breakfast, Katie McBanawa might walk around the perimeter of the fenced-in rec yard, or if she has a job, she would be led by an officer to that job site. Some prisoners have jobs that allow them to go outside and work on landscaping. That gig is nice because you get fresh air, you get to escape the chaotic environment inside. Katie would at some point have to walk by the solitary confinement area, as well as the area where death row inmates are housed. There is also a medical dorm for those with chronic and or terminal diseases. There's also that youth offender, or YO as it is known, dormitory. That is a whole different level of cray-cray because you have inmates ages 21 and under there. Occasionally, they get into some nutty stuff. According to one former inmate, one of the worst aspects of prison is time. She said that for her, she would count each day until her release date, and sometimes that date would seem so far away. For Katie, 
There is no release date. All she has in front of her is an endless sea of days until she dies. Just like Daniel Rashbaum said, she'll leave in a box. And of course, if you commit murder, that's exactly what you should have to look forward to. That's your punishment. So again, don't think I'm feeling sorry for Katie McBanawa. I'm not. I'm very aware that she's the person who harassed Sigfredo Garcia into committing the crime. She's the one who got all giddy when she saw the money and the wealth and the Lexus and all these things and the boob job yada yada yada. She said, if you want me back, then you have to do this, Siegfredo. Katie can be very manipulative from what I've read. When the FBI had her phone and Siegfredo's wiretapped, they heard Katie pressuring Siegfredo to call the phone number that was on the piece of paper the undercover FBI agent pushed into Donna Adelson's hand during that sting operation that was referred to as the bump during Charlie Adelson's trial, Siegfredo wanted nothing to do with that phone number. He never called it, even though he told Katie he had. No one wanted to dial that scary number because they didn't know if the blackmailer was legitimately a friend or relative of Luis Rivera's or if it was the FBI. Ironically, Charlie Adelson and his mother Donna both dialed the number. Charlie was trying to suss out if it was really someone who wanted him to pay $5,000 to Luis Rivera and or his family, or if it was the cops crawling for information. Donna Adelson also called the number, and she flatly refused to admit that she knew anything about what this person was saying. She kept telling him that if he had information about the crime, then he should go and get the $100,000 reward. He kept saying, go to the police, tell them what you know. Donna was a cool cucumber as she dealt with this undercover agent. She is one tough cookie. I hope this gives you a good idea of what Katie McBanawa's life in prison is like. That's all for today. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.